Welcome to Pharma Talk Radio. Today's program comes from the 2018 Chief Medical Officers and Biopharma Summit. The topic discussion we are featuring is on Should Patients Have the Right to Try? Dr. Allison Bateman House, Assistant Professor, Division of Medical Ethics at NYU Langone Health, gave this presentation on May 8, 2018. The next Chief Medical Officer Summit is April 4th and 5th at the Hilton Back Bay in Boston. Enjoy the podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm glad some people have stuck around till the bitter end. I'll try to keep you awake. Um, you can read behind me and see the groups and the organizations that I've worked with while I'm explaining to you who I am. So as said, I'm an assistant professor of medical ethics at NYU Medical Center. Before NYU, which is a relatively new program, I was at Columbia, and before Columbia, I was at Johns Hopkins. And basically what I do is I deal with ethical issues in clinical trial design, and particularly in the last couple of years, expanded access. So obviously, just to make sure we're on the same page, expanded access, access to an unapproved drug, unapproved for any indication, uh, outside of a clinical trial. So that's what uh, I talked to this group about last year, and I appreciate being asked to come back to talk to you again. This year, I was instructed to talk about right to try, because right to try has been in the news a lot. But it's impossible to talk about right to try without talking about expanded access. So I'm going to talk about the two. And since I know what I think, uh, I beg of you to interrupt me at any point if you want to debate an issue or if you have a question or want a clarification on something. So with that being said, I was told to speak on should patients have the right to try. So I will tell you what I'm going to say. The answer is yes. But of course, the question is, what does that actually mean? So to me, do they have the right to try means should they have access to expanded access, meaning if they do not qualify to enter a clinical trial, if they have no other product available to take care of their medical condition, may they request a drug company for access to an investigational product? And my answer to that rewording of the phrase is yes. And then I say they already do. It's called expanded access. Uh, we've had it since the 1970s. We can talk in detail about that as I go through. And so then if I boil down more specifically to do they need the so-called right to try that's being debated right now, my answer is no, it's not helpful. So that's, uh, you know, I, I'm a big fan of tell, tell them what you're going to tell them, then tell them, then tell them again. So that's what I'm going to tell you. Okay, so how did we even get here? I'm sure you all have seen uh, headlines like this, and if you haven't personally seen it, probably someone in your company has and has been asking you uh, what you're going to do about this. So Pence pushes right to try bill. It was the only policy Trump mentioned in the State of the Union address. Um, physicians, ethicists say, please don't do this. Uh, patients say, please don't do this. Um, then a quote-unquote compromise right to try bill was floated. Uh, but as this headline says, could be a hard sell. And then down at the bottom, from the actual uh, side of the debate that was pushing for the right to try bill, now they're saying that they didn't try hard enough. It, what, what is being currently debated right now is timid, poorly conceived, uh, it was too limited in scope, and they should start all over again. So, so this is sort of an ongoing dialogue for four years in the media. Believe it or not, it's been four years, although it seems like it's just really come to the fore in the last couple months. So what is this, and how does it differ from what we currently have? I don't need to, to 
uh, preach to this group, unlike many groups that I talk to, about the idea that we want patients to go in clinical trials. When possible, we would much prefer patients go into clinical trials than to have N of 1, you know, handoff of investigational drugs for people to use as they wish. So we won't even talk about that. But we will, of course, understand that not all patients can get access to drugs via clinical trials. Uh, there are inclusion, exclusion criteria, and some of you may know that that uh, was the subject of a meeting in D.C. Uh, sponsored by the FDA just about a month ago. I was there with many other people talking about um, the fact that in some cases, inclusion, exclusion criteria are overly strict and actually cause uh, hardships for patients who could legitimately participate in trials. So an example of this is um, ASCO in, in oncology has recently put out a whole series of position papers saying that um, inclusion-exclusion criteria unfairly and not in the name of good science exclude the very young, the very old people with HIV, uh, co-infection, and certain other comorbidities. So, so there's ongoing efforts to try to uh, adjust the fact that some patients currently can't get into clinical trials. But until that happens, we have some patients who can't get into clinical trials for reasons of inclusion and exclusion. Sometimes a trial is very popular and there's just not enough slots for everyone who wants to participate. Sometimes the patient lives in a medically underserved community where you know just clinical trials aren't easily available. Or even if they are easily available, it's not really accessible to those patients because you know, they uh, can't afford to take off from work that frequently. They have child care obligations. They have elderly parents that they are caretaking for as well. So for numerous other reasons, um, you know, that I'm not going to belabor, there are people who can't get into clinical trials, even though that's the only possible treatment option for their disease. They either do not qualify for any of the standard of care options, there are no standard of care options, or they tried all the standard of care options and they're not working anymore. So what happens? Particularly in fields like ALS, you have rampant self-experimentation. These are people, they buy supplements, they buy things over the internet from other countries, they try holistic therapies, etc. Uh, Off-label use is fairly common, especially in certain disorders. And you know, just to differentiate off-label from expanded access, even though I'm sure most of you are aware of this, this is a product that has been approved by the regulatory authority for some use, and then it's being tried for something else. So one example that I'm very familiar with is in multiple sclerosis, there's a craze right now for using uh, over-the-counter antihistamines. There's a hypothesis that these certain over-the-counter antihistamines somehow help with the autoimmune reaction. It's an approved product. It's an over-the-off-label over the, um, use. I'm not talking about those here today. And then, of course, personal importation from another country. So again, for ALS, up until recently, many patients were importing an approved drug in from Japan uh, because there was such a scarcity of options here in the United States. What I'm talking about is pre-approval access. So again, access to a medical product before approved by a regulator and outside of a clinical trial. Frequently known as compassionate use in terms of regulatory and uh, you know, legal language, we know it as expanded access. And what I'm talking about specifically at the moment is a, a variant of this idea, which is called right to try. So the legal definition of expanded access, just to make sure we're all on the same page, is this. 
uh, by definition, there has to be no comparable or satisfactory alternative therapy to diagnose, monitor, or treat the patient's disease or condition. So we typically think of like the end-stage cancer patient who is looking for some option to try to maintain their life. That's common, it doesn't have to be that. So for example, during the Ebola epidemic and during SARS epidemic, we used expanded access to uh, use non-yet-approved diagnostic tools. So it can be for any number of things where there's not something currently approved on the market. And it's limited to people with, as you can see here, life-threatening diseases and conditions and or serious diseases conditions with substantial impact on day-to-day functioning. Uh, This language is deliberately fuzzy. The people who wrote this definition were trying to give maximum flexibility um, so that they didn't accidentally you know, box out something that then a, a legitimate case came forward and they said, well, obviously it makes sense that you would want expanded access, but, but you don't fit our regulatory definitions. So this was mentioned, this was meant to be intentionally fuzzy. And with regard to who defines serious, technically it's the FDA who gets to decide if something is appropriately serious or not. Uh, in my experience and in the experience of everyone I've worked with, Uh, No one has ever had the FDA decline a request on the grounds of it not being serious enough. So the point of all this is, is that it's a use of an investigational product to attempt to help the patient, to treat the patient, as opposed to gathering data for clinical investigation. Data can be collected. This is a growing trend. It's something that I work with companies on frequently trying to encourage them on moral grounds to say if you're going to use an investigational drug in a person, you have a moral obligation to find out you know, some basic data points of what happens so that the next time around you have that information. Um, but it's not necessary. And as you can see on the, on the bottom, there are different categories of expanded access. Um, there are slightly different rules and regulations for if it's an emergency request versus a non-emergency request, if it's for just one patient versus a group of patients, et cetera. But I won't get into the details of that unless someone has a particular issue that they want to discuss, and then I'm happy to do so. So as I said, this has been in existence in the United States since the 1970s. Basically what happened is once we... Uh, move to the the definition that the FDA wants to see that a drug, you know, it's not only what it says on the outside of the bottle, inside the bottle, but we have some sort of proof that it's actually safe and uh, effective before it's allowed on the market. Suddenly it took much longer to get things on the market. You know, hence immediately there was a pushback from people saying, wait a minute, I need new drugs. And now because of your new system, it's taking so much longer to get them on the market. Hence, almost immediately expanded access became uh, available because they said, you're right, in certain circumstances, they're patients who we want to be able to make this drug available to. Most people don't realize it's that old. They think of it more as a creation of the HIV AIDS epidemic, which is certainly where many of us became aware of it. And, you know, obviously it was impacted by that. And also the lessons of the HIV AIDS epidemic when, you know, activists were besieging the FDA saying, don't protect us to death. We're willing to take on some risk because we don't have any other option. Those lessons were uh, picked up and carried forth by breast cancer patients who uh, very strategically sought to target companies who were making 
new effective looking drugs, but again, not making them available to patients outside of clinical trials, saying, you know, as long as you get your trials filled, which we totally agree you have to be able to do, the rest of us shouldn't just be left here to die. You should come up with something for us. So that's basically where this came from. Um, it has become a much hotter topic in about the last five years. Many of you may be familiar with the Josh Hardy case involving uh, the biotech firm Chimerics down in um, North Carolina. So the CEO of that company, Ken Mock, is a close friend of mine, and he is actually one of my board members. We have a multidisciplinary group that works on this topic. I should just say we have people from everyone you've seen on stage here today. We have regulators from around the world. We have venture capitalists. We have patient advocates. We have clinicians. I don't remember who else we have, but anyway, you name it, we bring them around this round table and try to say, you know, where are actually the, the sticking points that, um, you know, could be fruitfully addressed with policy, and if so, what policy changes can we recommend? And one of the policy changes that we've recommended is to try to make people aware of what expanded access is, how it works, and give them resources to contact when they have problems, which is why I'm here today. So I'm telling you about expanded access. I'm here to answer questions, and I'm also making myself and my group available for free. As you saw on the disclosure slide, we work for free. So if at the end of you know next month or next year or something you have, hopefully not a Ken Mack type situation, but some other type situation, please give us a call. And if you don't remember how to contact me, please contact Bio because they work with me closely. How many here have dealt with expanded access requests? About half. How many of you who have dealt with requests said no? Okay, so for those of you who are not uh, personally familiar with it, this is the process. For a patient who is interested in expanded access or a physician who wants to make this available to their patient, First, you have to find a willing physician. Nothing happens unless you have a willing physician. And then either the patient or the physician or some combination thereof have to figure out what drug it is they want to request. You can't just, you know, like shout up to the heavens, I want an investigational drug that will work. You have to actually decide what you want. Then you have to figure out how to contact the company. This used to be exceedingly hard for practicing clinicians. For those of you in the room, how many of you, please raise your hand, if you have a uh, drug that is in phase two or later. So it could be on the market, phase three, phase two. All right, keep your hands up. How many of you know if you have on your website your expanded access policy? If you don't, you're not in compliance with the law. So go fix that. Uh, 21st Century Cures, December 2016. One of the myriad provisions in that is that by the time a company reaches Phase two for any of its products, it has to have its expanded access policy available to the public. That's generally interpreted as on your uh, company website. It can say, we don't do expanded access. It's not requiring that you do it. It's requiring that you make it available so when this patient or when this doctor is trying to figure out how to lodge the request, they can find it fairly easily. You have to provide a point of contact at your company. You have to provide either a phone number or an email address about how to contact that point of contact. And you have to give a time period by which you'll get an, a response from the company. 
Those are all recent efforts to try to help with this point, too, of identify how to contact company, because many, many, many horror stories of people, you know, calling numbers, leaving messages, uh, going to shareholder meetings, sending messages to LinkedIn accounts, and not getting any response, and hence not being able to move on with either, you know, a plan B or moving to palliative care or what have you, because they just keep hoping for a response. So we're trying to avoid that. It's the physician who has to lodge the request. If the individual patient lodges the request, you as a company should and may say, you know, get your physician to contact us. Once the physician contacts the company, it's your absolute right to say no. Doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be popular and doesn't mean that you're immune from getting social media pushback like Ken Mock did, but legally it's your right to say no. And as long as you have done due diligence, people like me will try to help defend you. Um, And we can describe later what I mean by due diligence. If you say yes, that's when the FDA comes into it. Uh, It's a different form if it's a multi-group request, like if you're trying to set up an expanded access program for a group of people. But if it's for just one person, it's a one-page request. It's seven questions. It takes approximately 45 minutes to fill out. If it's such an emergency that 45 minutes is not possible, you can do it over the phone 24 hours a day with the FDA hotline. On average, if it's an emergency request, you'll get an answer same day. If it's a non-emergency request, you'll get an answer within four days. So as I say here, the FDA reviews the form and either says yes or no. 99.9% of the time, the FDA says yes. Personally, I've never encountered a situation in which the FDA said no. Doing an audit of their databases when they did say no, it's either because there's an investigation, uh, sorry, there's a drug on the market that hasn't been tried yet, or the seven-page form is not filled out completely, or, you know, as soon as the request was uh, submitted, it then got revoked because, you know, the patient passed away or something. So it's incredibly uncommon for the FDA to to deny a request. Uh, What is more common is for the FDA to call up and say, hey, you know, we're on board with this, but we really think you should change the dosage, you should change the dose schedule, uh, you should add in some extra monitoring, et cetera. And that's a point of negotiation between the company, the doctor, and the FDA. Uh, Then, last but not least, the physician has to get IRB approval at the place where the drug will be administered, and uh, then theoretically um, serious and unexpected, not serious or unexpected, serious and unexpected adverse events have to be reported back to the company and the FDA. So basically, if the person has a heart attack immediately after administration of the drug, but they had been, you know, lingering on the edge of having, I'm not a doctor, so sorry, this is not a technical technical wording. If they had been lingering on the edge of having a heart attack for the last three days anyway, you don't have to report that because, yes, it is serious, but it wasn't unanticipated. So, right to try. Right to try uh, has been passed. It's now law in 40 states. Uh, It's going to be 41 any minute uh, with Alaska coming on board. Uh, It is not yet law nationally, and we can talk about that in a second. But what does it do? It doesn't change anything except for the FDA part of things. So basically, it cuts the FDA out of the picture. Uh, You can see question marks on the point 
where it says IRB. It really depends on the actual state-to-state -state law. Some of them cut out the IRB, some of them don't. And also on the national law that's being considered at the moment, uh, there are currently three versions that are up in the air. So depending on which version gets passed is whether the IRB will be cut out or not. So again, as I said, currently law in 40 states. Um, I am not a lawyer, but my understanding from the lawyers I work with is that states cannot carve out for themselves federal duties. And typically access to an investigational drug has been regulated by the FDA, a federal agency. So these laws are of questionable constitutionality. For 40 states to suddenly say, here's the rule by which you may access investigational drugs, uh, I've been told that these are probably not defensible in a court of law. That being said, someone would actually have to bring a lawsuit to test that, and it hasn't happened yet. So there are currently 40 states that have right to try laws, but thus far they're not being used, with two exceptions that I'll come back to in a minute. And even if they were used, we're not very sure that they're constitutionally valid, which is why there's a current effort right now to do a national law, because obviously if you have a national law, that takes care of any sort of lingering constitutional questions. So as I said, there have been multiple versions of a national law. The first version uh, was introduced in the Senate by Senator Ron Johnson from Wisconsin. Uh, it got nowhere. It did not get through the Health Committee uh, until the FDA uh, user fee reauthorization came up for a vote, and he threatened to use his prerogative as a senator to not allow that vote to happen unless his bill was voted out of the Senate. So it was passed by the Senate. Uh, there was very many changes made to it, uh, you know, frantically before that vote to try to make it uh, less mm, problematic, I guess is the word I'll say. Um, so a bill did end up passing out of the Senate. Um, the proponents of this law like to say that it was passed unanimously. And of course it was passed unanimously because if it wasn't passed, we weren't going to have a functioning FDA. So uh, they don't mention that part of it. Um, it then went to the House. The House, again, declined to vote on it. It did not get out of committee, at which point a separate version of the bill was introduced in the House. That version just recently got passed and has been sent to the Senate, and now there's a complete stalemate. The Senate is refusing to pass the House version, the House is refusing to pass the Senate version, and this is where we get that headline I showed you at the beginning about Vice President Pence getting involved, because he basically has given everyone involved an ultimatum saying, I don't care what version of the bill gets passed, just do something. And the Koch brothers have now gotten involved with a massive media campaign that any of you in DC have probably seen. So. There are multiple versions of the bill floating out there. I can't tell you precisely what it's going to include because they're all dramatically different and there's no telling which one of them is going to get passed. If I was a wagering woman, I would say one of them is going to get passed. There's too much pressure for it not to be passed. So the question is what ramifications will the sort of broad concept be since I can't tell you about the actual language of the bill. So let me just go back and say real quick, as I said, it's only been used by two people so far, despite the fact it's in 40 states. Both of those doctors were in Texas. Uh, anyone here know Stanley Brzezinski? No one knows Stanley Brzezinski? No one from oncology? Stanley Brzezinski is a quote-unquote pediatric oncologist 
who uh, has been practicing for probably about 20 years in Texas. He promises to save children with glioblastoma if their parents pay about $65,000. They do not survive, but he gets wealthy. And uh, the state medical board has tried numerous times to strip his license, as has the FDA. He claims to be using right to try to treat patients. There's another person named Dr. Del Passan who claims to have treated, I think, up to 80-some patients under right to try at this point. That one was a much less open and shut case. Um, He seemed to be a reputable doctor. It was a drug that was under investigation and since has been approved by the FDA. So the question was, why why is this person using right to try to treat these patients? Um, We FOIA'd various and sundry things trying to find out what was happening. And it turned out that the FDA had put a you know, a uh, restriction on his operation that he could not uh, enroll any more patients into clinical trials due to various and sundry problems that have been found in the past. So his way to get around that was to not enroll people into clinical trials. Instead, he's, quote, treating them through right to try, and again, they have to pay uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars to enroll. So basically the idea that I'm trying to get across to you here is that this is not something that your average reputable doctor is using at the moment, and I would argue is not something your average reputable doctor ever will be using because you don't need it. So this is, if you live in one of those shaded states, you have a right to try law in your books. So uh, in closing, why do I oppose right to try? Um, and And I'll say this, I did not go out seeking right to try, it came to me. And since I had no idea of what it was, I was agnostic at first. I actually had patient groups bring it to me and say, hey, this might be a good idea. And I said, okay, I don't know what it is. Let's read it. Um, So my opposition to this uh, came as a result of me becoming familiar with the topic, not because I was just opposed to it from the get-go. But basically, this is a uh, policy that was created by a libertarian organization called the Goldwater Foundation, And its basic premise is that the reason patients cannot get access to investigational drugs outside of clinical trials, even when they're dying, even when this is like their only chance of hope, uh, is because the FDA is a slow, cumbersome, monolithic, inhumane government entity. And as I just told you a minute ago, over 99.9% of requests that go to the FDA get approved If it's an emergency, they get approved within 24 hours, and if it's a non-emergency, they get approved within four days. So this just runs afoul of the basic data that the FDA is the problem. Um, Also, in my work with companies, I work with hundreds of companies. I didn't list them all, obviously. Um, But I have yet to speak with a single company that would be willing to hand out its investigational product without the FDA being on board with this as a concept. The idea that... There are companies out there eager to give their products to patients and patients and doctors who are eager to utilize them, and it's just the FDA standing in the way runs afoul of just the basic business concept of, you know, if you're going to take the risk of handing out your investigational product to someone who is probably too ill to be in a clinical trial in the first place, wouldn't you want to have the FDA's say so that they're on board with you, that they think that this is a good idea? Uh, As I said a minute ago, the FDA review is fast. It's also pro-patient in terms of the fact that, you know, they do make suggestions on how to modify the treatment proposal. 
And that may not be based on data that they can share with people, but it's based on, based on proprietary data that they are aware of, maybe not from your company, but maybe from your competitor that is creating a, you know, a very similar molecule. So generally, the, the reviews are fast, they're quick, they're easy, and they're helpful. Um, I have a question here on removes monetary caps on what companies can charge patients. It depends on what version of the law is passed. But at this point in time, as you may know, companies may charge for their products that they give out under compassionate use. It's just capped on what they can charge. It's not an unlimited, you know, I, I can charge you whatever I want. Uh, one version of the right to try bill says that for drugs used under right to try, that would be removed. And that's a problem, obviously, because then it creates an incentive for people to use the right to try pathway instead of the expanded access pathway. Um, la, la, la. I already talked about open door to bad actors. And let me just say this. Multiple state right to try laws have bad provisions. So every single one of those 40 states that has the right to try law, those laws are different in every state. It's not just one law stretched across 40 states. Every single state legislator modified it. So you have a patchwork of 40 different laws. And so I can give you the actual numbers if you want, but there are certain provisions that in some cases were kept from the draft model law created from this libertarian organization, and certain changes were modified, and in certain changes were, you know, disposed of completely. And they're very anti-patient, so let me tell you what they are. One says that if you use a drug obtain, or a medical product obtained through right to try, uh, you can lose access to home health care. One says if you use a product obtained through right to try, you can lose access to hospice. One says if you use a product obtained via right to try, you can lose access to health insurance for six months. Uh, a number of them say that if you are in an inpatient facility and want to use a right to try drug, you will be discharged from the inpatient facility. You know, and of course, there's no requirement that an insurance company or anything like this pays for this drug. So of course, what this sets up is a situation in which desperate patients who very much think that this is their last chance of staying alive uh, potentially face a situation where they'll, you know, be crowd fundraising, you know, holding bake sales, selling their house, whatever, to try to get the money to buy a product that they think may save their life, only to then find out that suddenly, you know, they've sacrificed six months of health insurance without knowing that up front. So, problems. Anyway, I believe that is all. So, is the current system... Perfect, no, and we can talk about that, and I can tell you about the various steps that are being taken to try to fix it, but that's only if you're curious, and what I wanted to do is come back to this, because I told you I was going to tell you what I said and then say it again. So, do patients have the right to try? Yes, currently, through expanded access, and if any of you have problems with that system or warrant details, I'm here to help you with it. Uh, do they need new right to try? No. Has pharma actually had the guts to stand up and say that? No. Has bio? No. Has patient advocacy groups? Yes. 40-plus patient advocacy groups have besieged Washington, D.C., asking for this policy not to pass. That's it. Thank you. Questions? I've never heard of one of these drugs being used. 
I've never heard of an outpatient use. So I don't have an answer for that. But I mean, yes, you, so the, the commercial IRBs are all available to do this. They do it fairly regularly. And in fact, there's something called um, Warp Copernicus Group that is uh, WCG, which is the largest commercial IRB. It has a not-for-profit foundation, the WCG Foundation, that will actually do 24-hour free turnaround of IRB requests for people who can't afford you know, hospitals and whatnot charge for IRB review. So WCG does it for free. Anything else? Yes? I mean, it seems to stem from an inherent distrust of the FDA. Yes. So much of the population. What's your view of how can that change? Um, well, I mean, I think we have a societal problem of people don't understand science, and we have a societal problem of people hate big pharma and are inherently suspicious about anything that they do. Um, I mean, I think there are numerous societal problems. I'll tell you one very small problem that you could fix that would actually help this is many times after a trial ends, there is no provision of post-trial access of the drug. So people who were in the study for whom the study product was working get cut off from it. And those are some of the largest voices calling for this because they're saying it's not even a guess. I know compound X helps me, but now I can't get it anymore, and I know it's not going to be approved for three years, and I may be dead by then. So thanks for that. Yeah. So, even if it's a placebo. So, I mean, that, so that's a fascinating thing. I can't tell you the name of the company, but I was just working with a company the other day. They had a phase three readout. Their product is inert. Zero difference between it and the placebo arm. But it's also safe. And there were patient-reported outcomes that they were doing better. So then the question is, okay, our trial is over. We're not doing anything. But we have you know, a warehouse full of this small molecule thing that otherwise we're just going to flush down the toilet. If people feel like they're getting a benefit from them, can we legally and ethically give it to them or not? And the answer is yes, we're doing that. I mean, does it do anything? Probably not. But these are dying people who think it helped. Why not? Anything else? Yes? So you mentioned two Both of them manufactured the drug themselves. Ah, okay. so they compounded the drug themselves. That was actually the, the one that we FOIA'd. That was like the big question mark because the first thing I did was call the drug company and say, why did you agree to give this to him via right to try? And they said, we cut him off years ago. We haven't given him anything. So then we started tracing. and He went through a compound pharmacy. I think it's going to happen. That's why I'm so dumbfounded that neither Pharma or Bio have publicly said this. So Janssen is the only company I know of that has publicly said it will not accept any right to try request. 
most other companies just say, you know, we, we will handle it through our normal internal processes. When I ask a company, what do you mean by that? They say, you know, we'll tell them, have your doctor contact us, and we'll go through all the normal expanded access route, but we're just not going to say that publicly. You know, all this happens without the patient having any idea what's happening. It's paperwork that's done you know, backstage, all the patient knows is that the request is happening. But I'm completely convinced, going back to what we were just saying a second ago about these sort of societal forces about lack of trust in industry, lack of trust in government, lack of trust in everything, I'm completely convinced that if you tell people that there's a nationwide law that they have a right to try, the minute you get your first denial from a company, you're going to get one of these social media campaigns and, and tons of anger. And I will tell you, there was already one case, one of the first states to pass the law was Missouri, and there was a heartbreaking case uh, sorry, a heartbreaking story in the newspaper very shortly thereafter about a terminally ill ALS man who moved his entire family to St. Louis so that he could get access to a drug that he thought would help him. And, of course, he got to St. Louis and still couldn't get access to the drug because the company had said no and didn't change their mind just because he had moved. And it was like this three-page story in the St. Louis Register or whatever about, you know, this horrible drug company who was denying this guy his right to try. I think it's just going to get worse. So that you can be in compliance. Good job. Thank you. Talk to your lawyer. <laughs> yes, I mean, I personally am in favor of people saying, you know, this is not a viable pathway. We don't support it. We're not going to have anything to do with it. But I also don't have to deal with the ramifications. So. does not supersede. They will exist simultaneously. So the problem with that is if you ask me what the number one problem with expanded access is, I would say people are confused about how to utilize it. You set up two simultaneous pathways, confusion is going to be exponentially more, especially because, just to like blow your mind a little bit further, those 40 different state patchworks, they don't go away once the federal law comes into effect. They will coexist. So, you know, even though there's a federal law that says X, Y, Z, if the state laws say, in addition to X, Y, Z, Q, R, S, that still stays on the book. So the law is going to differ literally from state to state. So I think we're going to have to cut this off. Thank you so much. That was so interesting. The next Chief Medical Officer Summit is April 4th and 5th at the Hilton Back Bay in Boston. For more information, visit theconferenceforum.org. Again, theconferenceforum.org. Thanks for listening.